Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by Donald Edward Casebolt. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking about your new book, Child of the Apocalypse, about Ellen G. White. And this was recently uh, published, and I just want to read a couple of the endorsements off the back here. Larry Garrity, friend of the show, says, few individuals I know are better informed on this period of the Advent movement than Donald Casebolt. He has made it his lifetime work to research every possible original literary source that has anything to do with the topic so thoroughly explicated in this book, which will be of special interest to church historians and scholars of religion who want to the to get to the bottom of what was going on in mid-19th century New England. So that's just one. Also, Ron Graybill, Jonathan Butler, and Scott Lemert also uh, give you endorsements on this book. What made you want to do this book? Well, I've always been a person that's sort of related to the saying of of Mr. Feynman, the nuclear physicist, he said, it's the pleasure of finding things out. I've always kind of had just that personality. I, I just want to find things out. When I was a, a kid, I'd be reading and I'd hide under my covers with a flashlight reading a book because my parents told me to go to bed. And uh, that's just kind of built into my DNA, I think. Well, I can identify with that. I also had to sneak in some reading a few times when I was a kid. And it's a pleasure. And reading your book was a pleasure. I read it in one day. It's about 90 pages long. And I found it incredibly interesting because I think you're making a very nuanced argument. This is not apologetics about Ellen White. And it's not an attack on Ellen White. I think it's a really uh, careful study of young Ellen White, teenage Ellen White, and what was going on in her life, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally. Um, When you tell people about the kind of gist of the book, what do you say? Well, it's been, of course, part of the public record that uh, she had a major accident, which affected her whole life at the age of nine. She had a severe traumatic brain injury. Um, I've heard that story since I was probably nine years old, but it I didn't get the particulars of of uh, how severe her injury was, that she was basically unconscious for three weeks, reduced to a skeleton, I assume, because uh, it's kind of hard to eat when you're unconscious. And uh, so she had a, I would say, we don't know exactly the an anatomical spot, but we have a general idea that it hit her prefrontal medial cortex. And... Just, just the fact also that she was only nine. Or excuse me, she was only twelve years old when she first ran into William Miller, and he just bowled her over with his biblical proofs. He had 
15 mathematical proofs that the end was scheduled because God was an exact timekeeper for 1843. The research that you do on these proofs, um, I think will be interesting to uh, both scholars and uh, folks who are just sort of interested in Adventist history and trying to understand um, who Ellen White was and the impact that she had in Adventism in part because I think we focus on the 2300-day prophecy, but you're really pointing out that she was um, deeply, deeply um, interested, perhaps relieved is the right word, when William Miller came on, came along when she was 12 years old. What, why, what, do you, what was it about um, William Miller that you think appealed so much to uh, a 12-year-old Ellen White? I think that a big part of it was he was so convinced that he was giving a literal, exact uh, interpretation, and he had these proofs that all simultaneously ended. Like you say, Adventists are generally aware of maybe just one prophecy, the 2300 day, but he had a whole bunch of other prophecies that also ended exactly on, uh, well, originally he, he picked March 21, 1844, which was the last day of the Jewish year by rabbinic reckoning. And, and he had to change that. But um, if you look at Roy Froome's Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, you'll see that actually numerous um, historicists we're starting to put not just one or, or two or three, but it was almost like a competition to find several that all ended. And they said to themselves, my goodness, it couldn't possibly be coincidental that we have nine proofs that the world's going to end in 1843. It's right there in black and white. Yeah, uh, I'll just make a little advertisement. Um, we have an article by you looking at uh, this um, kind of allegorical uh, typological uh, method and and uh, a case study on this in the forthcoming issue of Spectrum. So let's jump into your book right here, your uh, epigraph from Oliver, Oliver Wendell Holmes reads, we are all tattooed in our cradles with the beliefs of our tribe. The record may seem superficial, but it is indelible. And I found that spoke to me personally, but I see you also applying it to Ellen White. What exactly was uh, kind of tattooed in her mind at this age? Well, it was this uh, allegorical, historical, typological type of thinking. And I just threw in a, a side point. Most Adventists know about the, the signs of the, the, the dark day, the falling of the stars, the Lisbon earthquake. But also in her era, they actually believed that the aurora borealis or the northern lights was a last day phenomena that had never occurred before in history. And because she lives in Maine, Portland, Maine, it was far enough north that they actually had some events of the aurora borealis. And it was within maybe a month or two of her severe brain injury, where she was still so weak, they had an aurora borealis. 
and her mother lifted her up and I think took her to the window or took her outside. And Ellen records this and says, the sky was just blood red, the snow was blood red, and all the neighbors thought Jesus was coming right then. And also one of the key points about her personality was she felt she wasn't ready for Jesus to come and she was definitely going to hell. She believed very strongly in hell and everybody around her believed in hell. So, and then <clears throat> after her exposure with Mr. Miller, went kind of back and forth between elation and severe depression several times. And I think it's a little known fact that Miller preached hell, hell, hell. I put a quotation in there to show that in, in black and white that uh, he, he scared her to death, but he also um, gave her an assurance of salvation. And I think that's a key thing. Um, the Millerites said, it was not, you know, if I ask you the question, what must I do to be saved? It wasn't simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They actually said that belief in 1843, and then 1844 was a, a, a a test of salvation type of uh, question, you had to believe in it. And, and that's actually when they began getting uh, negative feedback from uh, the other churches. Mr. Miller was a prop, was a very popular itinerant preacher going here and there, and they'd hold revivals and people would be baptized into the Baptist church or the Methodist church or whatever church was sponsoring. And he was very popular. But then when he came down and said, actually, I, I know the year and I know the day. Well, then, then people said, whoa, uh, impossible. I'm, I really like the way that you set the stage of Ellen White living there in um, Maine because, you know, she goes through stages. We've mentioned everyone knows about the rock incident, and you really show that it was incredibly traumatic for her. Then she is a very spiritually sensitive and is getting this message of hell is real, you will uh, die. And she had a, a lot of guilt, um, as many teenagers do as they're going through that individuation process. Um, going from a child to uh, a maturing adult. And, um, and then she's hearing this sense of salvation, um, which is tied to believing in the uh, time prophecies, as you just stated. This runs up against, I think, a third crisis for her, which is um, she's a Methodist. And she can continue being a Methodist and her family listens to William Miller but then the Methodists meet and meet and meet again. William Miller, the, the Millerites have their third Congress right in her town. So she's at the, the hotbed of this uh, schism that's happening uh, within American religion. And why don't you take it away? Talk about what's going on with her family and this impending uh, split. Well, the other thing you have to remember is when Miller first came to town in 1840, he had just prophesied the end of the world and the end of the Ottoman Empire for 1839. And then that didn't happen that year. They had to postpone it to 1840. And then they got even more specific and said it was August. And so this was even before uh, Miller was in her town. Miller was invited 
to give a series of meetings by the Methodist minister, which who was favorable to his ideas, even before Ellen White met him. So they had this favorable, and and by the way, then he was later kicked out or re reassigned because just as Miller was preaching a more definite date, that's when the official Methodist organization drew the line and said, this is heresy. So Miller actually had two tours. The first tour, he was still popular and still um, hadn't, hadn't gone so far overboard, you might say, in his date setting. And I say Ellen White came into the church because she had her baptism, of which she had an ecstatic experience, by the way. Mm -hmm. So she came in under Miller. They had several months delay actually going through the mechanics of getting her baptized and so forth. But then he came, by the time he came in 1943, there was a schism. So she sort of came in with Miller and without Miller and clashed with her Methodist teachers. They were saying, no, you found, you found uh, Jesus Christ through Methodism. And she adamantly said, no, no, no. I found Christ and I'm saved through the teaching of the near advent of Christ, by which he meant 1843, 1844, kind of a euphemistic way to phrase it. And I believe that she maintained that orientation her entire life. She sort of conflated the date setting uh, along with this born again experience. And she, she never really let go of that. And if you recall, the uh, post-disappointment doctrine was, well, we did have all the dates right, so date setting is fine. We got all the right dates. We just got the wrong event. So they, they never really left that idea of exact dates, and that sort of permeated, permeated their whole idea of what prophecy was. Prophecy was predicting dates. It, it wasn't social justice, or it wasn't... Uh, the uh, prophet confronting, you know, speaking truth to power or letting go of the captives, uh, like Jesus Christ when he when he came to the synagogue, he said, "The spirit of prophecy is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives, bind up the brokenhearted." That was his idea. That was the acceptable year of our God. So it wasn't a date saying it's not saying 1843 is the year of God or 1844. It was in this idea. Yahweh had brought the Jews out of Egypt, out of slavery, and given them rest. And he built into the Old Testament uh, laws and prophecy a whole panoply of things protecting the oppressed, pro-widow, pro-orphan, pro-even stranger that is within thy gates. And they were supposed to celebrate that and mark that with the Sabbath as showing, you know, God is against systems of oppression and can give people rest. But in, in, instead of that, we have emphasized so much date setting, even after these dates are now nigh unto a, a quarter of a millennium in the past. And we're saying this is last day events, Lisbon earthquake, 1755, dark day, which we said was supernatural. And it's, you know, it's due to uh, smoke coming in from a forest fire in Canada, it just has become less and less tenable. But I just want to go back. That was, she was imprinted with that idea. And in my judgment, was mistaken in that idea. But nevertheless, she retained it. 
and we've retained it up to now. And so we're still trying to cling on to these sort of a rear guard action, clinging on to uh, indefensible positions. Can you talk a little bit about the 1851 chart and Ellen White's role in um, that early advent um, continuation of William Miller's system? Right. Well, about 1850, she was uh, near the home of Otis Nichols, and she had a vision of a new and improved 1843 chart. I'm going to assume that most Adventists have heard of the 1843 chart, which she said uh, was just as God wanted it. He had all the figures and periods, including some of these other periods and intervals that we alluded to besides the 2300-day one. But, but nevertheless, it was wrong in one aspect. It was 1843 instead of 1844. And she said that uh, God has put his hand over this figure to test the people, but then this needed to be corrected. So she had a vision saying that uh, she was empowered to make a new and improved version of the 1843 chart, which she produced with the financing of, of uh, her friend. And also, she says, she it was, it was only to be changed under inspiration. And of course, she was the person that was inspired to do that. And it repeated several of these supposed periods, a 25, 20-day per year period, a 1,335-day period, and she actually said that there was a, a prophecy of this 1850 chart that she was making in the Bible, which I'd actually read that passage, I think, before, but never quite struck me. She's really saying that the chart she's producing was predicted in the Bible, but she did. Um, one other thing I'd just like to emphasize is we have this picture of William Miller only using his Bible in a concordance, much to my surprise when I actually read his book and it's easily available to get, doesn't cost very much. I encourage any listener, go ahead and get his book and read it. It's not literal. And he picks it up from historicists going back clear to the Reformation who picked a bunch of different dates. And after those dates all failed, then Miller actually put different dates to the same events. And the other thing I'd like to point out is after William Miller was shown wrong on his dates, it was S.S. Snow who actually invented the midnight cry. There would have been no midnight cry without snow. And I want to just say that again. There would have been no midnight cry without snow. And that was the main burden of Ellen White's first vision was to say that the midnight cry was God's light. And if you actually read Snow's letters, especially his August 22, 1844 letter, he, he says, you've heard it said that no man will know the day or the hour, but I'm here to tell you the Bible preaches that you will definitely know the day and the hour, and any sincere Christian will know the day and the hour, and I've got it all figured out here with these periods, and if you don't believe it, you wouldn't have believed it even if an angel came down from heaven and knocked you over the head. So there. Uh, and Ellen White took that very seriously. And then she said, O.R.L. Crozier had the light. And if you read O.R.L. Crozier, he does the same, same thing. He chronicles, 
he puts in a specific chronology into the parable of the bridegroom and several other of the parables. And just as a generalization, you know, there's probably seven or eight or nine parables, all very similar to the parable of the bridegroom. And their whole point is you weren't going to know the day or the hour or the year. And yet that was the whole foundational preaching basis of what Miller said. And then what S.S. Snow said with the midnight cry. And again, readers, it's easily available on the internet. S.S. Snow's midnight cry. Read it and see if you think it's literal. Well, let's um, talk about the, the kind of Ellen White as she is kind of 14, 15. Um, they're in the, the kind of the the this transition between Miller and Snow and the Midnight Cry. And what's going on in Ellen White's mind then? You give this really incredible um, picture with uh, citations of Ellen White, a group of Millerites gathered in her home, and she uh, is upstairs and she is refusing to come down. What's, what's going on there? Well, she's been kind of going back and forth between periods of elation, feeling like she's saved with Miller with his first visit, and then she becomes not sure of her salvation and feels like God is not going to accept her. And she's working with this Methodist paradigm. First step was you're supposed to be able to pray publicly if you're really truly converted. And yes. she's, so, she's so shy that she just can't bring herself to do that. Then she finally does, and she feels elated. But then she feels like she has a further calling, and I'll just skip over some of the, of the steps. But she has this feeling like, I God is giving me dreams and testimonies, and I need to convert everybody here within the next few months, or they're all going to hell. And so she works day and night, spends all her spare change buying Millerite tracks and giving away, works on all her friends and acquaintances. Um, hardly sleeps until she feels like she's um, converted them, everyone. So she has, a, and what struck me was, we, we know that Ellen White later, she, she gets visions and dreams and writes out testimonies. Well, she's actually doing that already when she's like 15 or 16, and she's invited to speak publicly in a couple of different churches at least. And in fact, James White first sees her when he comes to town when she's only 16. And Wow, he thinks this is really a spiritual woman, and he's very impressed by her. And I also can't emphasize enough that William Foy was a tremendous model to her. He was a, a black young man who had an experience, who, who preached hellfire and who preached the end of the world. And he was prostituted in the spirit, which is a thing we haven't touched on so far. But he, he, he was knocked out or had some sort of out-of-body experience that lasted 12 whole hours, and they felt a need. You know, they knew people were going to be somewhat dubious of this claim. They, they said they had a doctor, a Dr. Cummings, who checked him out and pronounced, you know, there was no signs of, uh, there was, it was like a cardiopulmonary arrest, except for, a quote, a little activity around his heart. And then with Ellen White later, when she would have these uh, 
prostration type experiences. The stories grew up that, uh, you know, she, she, she had doctors examine her or perhaps Laban and th these doctors, we much also recall they, they, they really weren't, weren't too, too skilled in those days. They had all kinds of quack medicines. But anyway, the doctors pronounced William Foy as having some sort of supernatural experience. And Ellen White had the same thing. But the, the curious thing is, after saying William Foy passed off the scene, uh, it was discovered he was actually living for decades afterwards. And so he preached. Well, Ellen White purportedly received his mantle, even though he preached the end of the world and had this vision before the, the prophecy failed. She had a, a vision afterwards that the midnight cry was veridical and true. I think this is really important because the standard history here is that you just use that word, uh, the prophetic gift passed. I guess they're referring to Elijah and Elisha in some way. Um, the, the, the story that you tell, I think, is a little bit more nuanced. You have a young Ellen White who is obviously very spiritually sensitive and shy, knows that she needs to publicly testify to prove her faith within the Methodist context, gets um, swept up with Millerism, and is is aware of these other models of um, of public testimony that are tied to ecstatic experience, and then she starts doing it. And the connection that you make there is really key because you have a young, impressionable person who sees other people doing things that everyone feels like are incredibly um, spiritually authentic and incredibly dramatic in a public way. And um, making that connection that in a way she's kind of picking up a model of, of what a leader in a religious community uh, does, at least in this, uh, you know, kind of 1840s um, context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'd heard the story about William Foy before, but what I found out was he came to town and made his impression on her within just days, maybe a couple of weeks at most, of William Miller's first date in March 1844. So by the time she saw him fall prostate, it was only let's say two weeks before the end of time, according to her calculation. So he made a huge impression on her, I think. I'm so glad you've done this work to get these chronologies in place. Uh, it's um, really exciting reading. Oh, could I make one more comment still on this? And, and that is, I think it's highly significant that Father Pearson and his family sponsored both the publication of Foy's Visions and they were major sponsors or persons who confirmed her mission to spread the news outside of her hometown. So, you know, it's often said a prophet's not an honor in his own country, but a prophet cannot do their prophesying unless they get at least a small 
critical mass of people who believe. And, and I find it highly significant that both Pearson, Pearson is sponsoring both Foy and Ellen White. Yeah, a really key point. Let's uh, move in to the great disappointment and then talk about Ellen White's emerging role um, as these disappointed Millerites uh, start to try to understand what happened and, and what it all means. And can you talk a little bit about, you alluded to the Green Court of Faith um, and, and you really nail down exactly what she's talking about. So now she's about 16 uh, going on 17. Mm -hmm. Well, she was still 16 when the, when, the, when the prophecy failed because that happened in October and her birthday wasn't until the end of November around, let's say, Thanksgiving, the easier way to kind of remember about that date. And um, she's been elated. And then when the prophecy fails, she falls into extreme depression. And the thing I found remarkable is she has this friend, Elizabeth Haynes, and it's in her house that Ellen White is staying. Now, why is she staying in somebody else's house? Why isn't she at her own house? Well, she has this experience somewhat similar to when she was uh, hit with the rock, being unconscious for a couple of weeks. But in Elizabeth Haynes' house, she was uh, in, a, in, a, in a similar mental state her, she, she even reports it herself, her, her mind wandered, and this is exactly the period of time and the location where she's having her first vision is in Elizabeth Haynes' house, and, and then other, other visions, other, other of her early visions. And the challenge was that she is supposed to go, and not just to the, her local church, but she's supposed to start traveling. And this, like I mentioned, uh, the family of John Pearson, they ratify. It's kind of like, okay, official leg on the hands, you might say, when a young minister is uh, becomes ordained into the minister, it's the, it's the collective acceptance of that that she feels and feels this burden to do. Yeah, she gets, um, there's a kind of interesting dance here, I think. Uh, she has a, she's an individual with a singular gift and she needs a community um, that will um, uh, endorse it. And she's also ministering to um, communities. And, and that's kind of begins the process that I think we're familiar with where you start to have um, the shut door Adventists move into what we think of as the kind of early uh, Adventists. Um, let's talk about this, this emerging role that she has. And you have a footnote here. I'll read footnote 162. Ellen Harmon does not provide verse-by-verse -verse contextual exegesis. Rather, she simply asserts a general endorsement to the allegorical historicist exposition of others, specifically Miller, Snow, and Crozier, saying that they have the true light. No Adventist expositor has actually ever demonstrated that any of these men's writings contain a defensible, literal, common-sense justification for their theses. To the contrary, 
Apologists like F. Nickel and Merlin Burt concede that these men's expositions are far-fetched, fanciful, and allegorical. Yet, because Ellen Harmon claimed that these men's expositions contained the true light and that Miller came to his conclusions based on divine guidance, these men's far-fetched and allegorical expositions remain the cornerstone foundation of unique Adventist dogmas. What are you getting at there? Yeah. Well, step one, I was so shocked when I, I'd heard of some of these books, apologetic book, F.D. Nickel and, and Leroy Froome and Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, but I'd never actually read them, which I would encourage people, you hear uh, this and that and the other thing, actually take the book out and read it before you make up your mind about it. Absolutely. So the Midnight Cry, I, I, I saw in the, in the text in the appendix where he basically says that I'm, I'm paraphrasing him. Yeah, he actually uses the word, these prophetic periods are, are far-fetched, fanciful, and hoary with age. I like that word, hoary, H-O-A-R-Y, with age. And so Miller has these ideas, like I mentioned, he's not just using his Bible concordance, he's taking these from other people, and I could give you an interesting one but about about, about, about the earthquakes, uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for later. You have um, to read the book. <laughs> yeah, you have to read the book. Um, anyway, so, so so Miller, and she's impressed, I, he has it, but then, like I said, no, no textual evidence. So the second step is when, when Miller's prophecy failed in springtime of 44, everybody was completely out at sea without a rudder, without any wind. And then basically snow comes along and has this whole new idea and, and stampedes Miller into finally endorsing it. Ellen White and, and is well known for saying, you know, this idea didn't come from the leaders of the movement, but it wasn't until October 6, just 14, what, what is it? 16 days before October 22, on October 6, both Miller and coincidentally J.V. Himes, the publicist, they finally come around and say, oh, okay, we're, we think Christ is going to come exactly on October 22. But before that, they've been saying, it's ridiculous to say a certain day or hour. And and I, I mentioned this letter by Snow. He, he does give exact texts. And, but you, you look at the article I listed, I didn't quote them all, 14 biblical texts, which he says are, are the biblical proof, you know, the nuts and bolts proof that you will know the day. When you look at those texts, they don't have anything whatsoever to do with any exact day. You think, why is he writing this text? I, I, I would make the million-dollar challenge. Show me how that relates to the last days, and I'll write you a check for a million, thousand dollars. That's that's my limit. <laughs> And, and then um, the second step af after afterwards, Crozier, Ellen White says, has a true light. You, you read him. It, it doesn't have anything to do with literal exposition of prophecy. It, it has to do, again, with this mathematical biblical thing where he, he breaks up the parable of the bridegroom into four distinct specific chronological dates. It's almost, well, it, he says, March 21, 1844 is one of the major signs. Then the midnight cry on October 22 is another one. And 
and and and James White, by the way, he's he's got this four watches of the night. Even afterwards, he says Christ is coming, and I'm sure of it. On October of 1845, now I, I hadn't heard of that one until recently. But he divides up and says the two years exactly prior to October 1845 can divide can be divided up into four distinct chronological periods exactly so we're not talking about just a day as a year we're talking about you know a night time is maybe only six months and half of the night time is three months so he divides up and he later says in 1847 that ellen white says you're going to be disappointed james and that is now cited as if ellen white had some special vision that warned him ahead of time. But I would just point out, it really didn't take much of a prophet to know by, they'd already been prophesying three or four or five, even sometimes six times this specific date, that it was a mistake to, it was a, perhaps a fatal mistake to ruin, ruin your credibility if yet again you pick a date. And so supposedly James dropped that maybe just a few days before October 1845. Mm. You know, I think it's important to recognize what you're saying about her emerging role. Uh, you you write on page 86, she never provided a verse-by-verse, word-by-word, grammatical, syntactical exposition of any of Miller's theories. And it really caught my attention. What you're really saying there is she is not really what we would think of as a Bible scholar. And in fact, when you read her work, it's not, it doesn't really dig into the text. Instead, what she kind of functions as is a stamp of approval between competing theories about this interpretation or that interpretation. What, what are you saying there? Well, for example, her, her first editor, Enoch Jacobs, when, when, when Christ didn't come October 22, 1844, saying, well, maybe it takes him about seven days to get from, he's left heaven, but it's going to take him seven days to get here because it's going to take seven days to go back up. So maybe it's going to, we're only off for seven days. Then they came and said, well, 40 days, 40 years in the wilderness. Maybe it's going to be in 40. We're sure he's coming in about 40. And then they said, well, it must be springtime of 1845 because that was typologically important. Well, eventually Ellen White says, well, Crozier's got the right idea because one of their sort of arcane debates was the, the Day of Atonement type of thing was going to happen. And, and S.S. No said, yeah, it's going to happen. It's happening in one day, whereas Crozier said, we have an extended atonement. But, you know, when Ellen White says he had the true light, well, how, how much of his, I would just say, go back, read through Crozier if you can bear to do it, you know, because it, it really isn't simple as a, that any child can understand. It's rather convoluted, like all the Millerite stuff is. But read it and see if you can figure out how literal and exact this is. It, it, it isn't, in any case, 
he 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 says it might be a whole millennium that you will be in this period of time, not just one day. So at, at this point, we're only like 177 years into it. Well, thanks for bringing us that hope. Um, as we're sort of wrapping up this discussion, uh, you use a term called confabulation to, to, to kind of help understand what is going on in Ellen White's mind. What do you mean by that? Well, it's technical definition, and I'm just going to read the definition from one medical source. Quote, is the creation of false memories in the absence of intentions of deception. Individuals who confabulate have no recognition that the information being relayed to others is fabricated. Confabulating individuals are not intentionally being deceptive and sincerely believe the information they are communicating to be genuine and accurate. So ever since Ellen White's time, there's sort of been two polar opposite ideas. Apologists got to say, well, everything she said was exactly so. And even if she saw it completely different than everyone else, that's the true version. And people who have been critic and say, well, she's just a, a complete lying fraud. And I realized, no, I, I think this confabulation idea fits better. And I'll just give you one example of a concrete example that came out fairly recently with the arrest of Israel Damon. She relates this incident and says the arresting forces kind of ran into the overwhelming shining power of God and they were knocked on their butt, so to speak, two different times and they, they were not resisting arrest. But when you read the sheriff's account, which um, Hoyt found about 20 years ago and was so surprised and so shocked, he kind of hid it in his back pocket for a number of years before he shared it with everybody. But Ellen White sees things and relates things from this sort of supernatural point of view. And the other way she does this, for example, she let her kids be babysat or nannied while she went on her travels from like their first five years of their life. And they had numerous incidents where they got sick. And she perceived this as actually them going, her children having hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil. So when they're flailing their arms around as little babies of six or 12 months or a little bit older than that, she actually thinks Satan is attacking us. And she also says the same thing when other members of her family and James White comes down with cholera. So it, it's not the germ theory. She doesn't have a naturalistic explanation. It's a supernatural explanation for what we know clearly and clearly was a natural phenomena. So I realize in some of these cases, well, for example, um, Joseph Bates noticed that she had, she had a strange similarity to stuff that was written by Turner about the bridegroom theory. And, and she said, well, no, no, she never read the book. She, it was in her house, but she never read it. And the same thing with Jay and Andrews. She had the idea when, when he says, boy, your, your, your description so, so similar to Milton's Paradise Lost. Did you ever read that? 
No, she put it up on a high shelf somewhere and, and never read it. I, what I'm saying is, it seems to me that on these cases where, well, I think even Dr. Knight says she was fudging. She seems to be fudging on some of her health, earliest health message. She was indeed dependent on these other folks. Now, I don't think she was intentionally being deceptive. It's kind of hard to imagine, but this confabulation does exist, and it particularly exists in persons who have had traumatic brain injuries to that medial prefrontal lobe and incidents of PTSD and psychological trauma with cognitive dissonance. And I say, well, she had all three of those factors. So I'm not saying this is the only explanation or this is proved totally, but it's certainly consistent with that medical explanation, which is pretty strange. And I tell people, a lot of people in our culture have heard of Oliver Sacks, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of strange things. This is one of those strange things where, and, and I've seen it demonstrated on YouTube things where a person, you can be an eyewitness to an event and the person that you're witnessing it with will tell you to your face, no, this did or did not happen when you know it did or didn't happen, the opposite of what they're perceiving. So they're not trying to deceive you, but I think Ellen White, in some cases, uh, put a, 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 through a certain lens, a supernatural lens, like in the case of Israel Damon, and it, it's colored. And I think that better explains the things. I, I, I don't think that uh, at 12 years old and, and then 16 years old, and, and, and immersed in this culture, she said things that were intentionally trying to deceive. I just think that's the way she perceived reality in her memory uh recreated it in that form but she was mistaken yeah i appreciate the nuanced approach that you're taking here and i think wrapping up i'll just read uh the line that you say you point out she you know this book kind of covers her from age 12 to age 16 and then a little beyond as ellen Harmon became ellen g white her 2000 visions resulted in 8,000 letters, 5,000 periodical articles, and countless speaking engagements. The testimonies emanating from these thousands of communications imprinted an indelible tattoo on scores of Adventist thought leaders, on a disciplined ecclesiological organization, on a collection of Millerite-era interpretations, and on the corporate consciousness of about 20 million Adventists around the world. As you reflect back on this, uh, does it give you a sense of awe, of, of hope? It's, you know, you're, you're really delving into the mind of someone who crafted, you know, incredible institutions of higher education. Um, you know, millions of people feel like Adventism gives them meaning, hope, salvation, a purpose. Uh, of course, we have our, our healthcare system. Uh, what does it all mean to you? Yes, well, that's where I'd say she's certainly inspired in this high sense of the word. 
uh, an institutionalization of a lot of, um, I wouldn't say she was so much direct social justice, except for with the uh, work in the, in the Southern South during the period of Jim Crow and lynchings and so forth, that she certainly supported and was very vocal in saying, hey, we, we can't leave this field untouched. Yeah. Um, but also what I'm suggesting is, do we really think that she had 2,000 visions, which is more than all the Old and New Testament prophets put together? Are we really going to? But, but that's the calculation that uh, has been done by scholars as we've, you know, had in our institutionalization in a positive sense, their education. You know, Miller and early Adventism was very anti-intellectual. And that strain has lasted throughout our history. But at the same time, we have all these educational institutions which have created us, you and I and others. And, 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 and we, we, we've been brought up on the maxim, truth can stand close to investigation. And in fact, we should, we shouldn't be reflective of other men's thoughts, even though to some extent, what I'm saying is we're indelibly imprinted by other men's thoughts and we want to tend to, to follow them. And the last thing I'll just say is there was a tremendously interesting anecdote by Ron Graybill in a recent spectrum about this incident that he had with the Salamanca vision, which I'll just say pretty certainly was backdated, but it's, it's the interaction between Ron Graybill and Arthur White. Arthur White thought he knew what he was talking about. As Ron Graybill says, he was deceived. <laughs> not intentionally deceived by Ellen White, but yet he has put an imprint and certain high-ranking general comments officers in the White estate have, they're the kind of the school of Ellen White and it's like everything that they say, that's the way you've got to believe it. And I've kind of realized in certain cases at least, maybe in significant ones, Arthur White and maybe even Willie C. White did not really have the best spiritual judgment and intellectual judgment. And they, you know, they covered up things about the wasters. They did, they put ellipses in and they, they, I don't think they were trying to see, but they, they were trying to protect Ellen White and protect a certain aura of infallibility that now I think scholars realize it just ain't so. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for the untold hours that you've put into actually reading all this 19th century prose. The book is called Child of the Apocalypse about Ellen G. White. We'll have links on the website. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget.